Well, as we noted several weeks ago, the heart and soul of Christianity is belief in Jesus. It's not belief in a higher power or belief in a high moral standard or belief in the brotherhood of mankind. It's belief in Jesus. But it's not just any belief about Jesus. It's not belief that he was the most influential man to ever live or that he was the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth or even that he was the premier prophet of God. It's the belief that Jesus was and is the Son of God. All of us gathered here today believe that. And like Peter, when asked who he thought Jesus to be, most of us have actually confessed that we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But when we say we believe he's the Son of God, what does that mean? And how would we explain it to someone else? It would probably begin with a Christmas story and tell how God became a man by being born to a virgin. And then we might go to the first chapter of John's Gospel and note that in doing so, the pre-incarnate God, the Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That would explain how God came to earth. But why do we call Jesus the Son of God instead of just God? You know, calling him the Son of God might give the impression that we believe him to be something less than God, that he's more like a prince to the king. Another question might arise if we quote John 3.16 and say, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Aren't we all sons and daughters of God? And doesn't begotten simply mean to be born? Apparently not at least not in John's mind. He makes it a point to refer to Jesus as the only begotten Son of God five times. So he must have had something in mind other than the fact that Jesus was simply born. Now, obviously, Jesus' birth was different than ours. He had no earthly father. So in that sense, he is unique Could that uniqueness of his birth and the subsequent relationship to God be what John is emphasizing? I I think it is, because Jesus is indeed one of a kind. And his relationship to the Father is unique. But what exactly is the relationship between the Father and the Father? And the Son, we're back to our original question. What does it mean to be the Son of God? Well, maybe we need to ask another question. Does it really matter? Of course it does. Because our understanding of who Jesus is depends on how we view his relationship to the Father. Now, obviously, the world's understanding of who Jesus is and that of the church differs. But there is a difference of opinion in the religious community as well. You know, liberal theologians would suggest that the church exaggerated Jesus' claims about himself and made him into more than he ever claimed to be. 
And to take them to the scriptures to prove them wrong does no good because they believe the scriptures to be the product of the church. They set themselves up as the judge of truth, but throw out the basis for truth, God's revealed word. Now, I don't play that game. If I want to know what Jesus said about himself, I go to the scriptures and read what he had to say. And he had some pretty amazing things to say about himself in our text for today. Things that really upset the theologians of his day. It all started when he referred to himself as the son of God. When he referred to God as his father and did so in a way that set himself apart from everyone else who acknowledges that God is their heavenly father. In fact, what he said about his relationship to God makes it clear that he considered himself to be equal with God. That the Son of God is not a lesser God. He's not like a prince to the king. The Son of God is fully equal with God. Let's see what he actually said about that. And let's see how the religious authorities took what he said. And then we'll see how Jesus backed it up. We're in John, the fifth chapter. Ready for verses 16 through 18. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John notes that the Jewish authorities were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, what things was he doing? Up to this point in the narrative, the only thing he had done in violation of their Sabbath laws was to heal a man who had been sick for 38 years. But John knew that Jesus would continue doing things on the Sabbath that would upset them. When confronted, Confronted about the violation, Jesus said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. He didn't say, Our father. He said, My father. And they caught the difference. His father didn't take a day off, and he didn't either. When God finished the creation, he rested from the labors of creation, but his work as provider and sustainer of the universe didn't stop. The laws of nature he put into place and actively regulates didn't stop functioning on the Sabbath. And Jesus, the Son of God, wasn't about to stop doing what he had come to earth to do, just because it was a Sabbath. After all, as he would later say, the Sabbath was given for man and not man for the Sabbath. It wasn't established to be a burden to man, but a blessing. It was given to provide a day of rest, something men need, but something that God doesn't need. Well, his answer infuriated the authorities. Not only was he openly breaking the Sabbath, he was making himself equal with God. 
He was justifying his actions by equating them with God's actions as if he had the same rights, privileges, and responsibilities as God. Because of that, John notes the Jewish authorities were seeking all the more to kill him. He not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his own father and made himself equal with God. Now, if that's what he was doing, and it wasn't true, it would be blasphemy of the highest order. Jesus knew that was what they were thinking. And he knew the seriousness of their charge, but he didn't back down and say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, you misunderstood me. You know, I, I didn't mean to give you that impression. Instead, he defended himself. He answered and said, He gave a legal response to their apparently unspoken charge of blasphemy. And John records his response as the first major discourse that we find in his gospel. Now, the fact that John records it as such highlights the importance of what Jesus had to say here. And the fact that John felt the church needed to hear it in total. It's a little hard to follow, but since it was important to Jesus and to John, we need to make every effort to understand it and to understand its significance. In this first discourse of the Gospel of John, Jesus defended himself by offering both personal testimony and additional testimony to the fact that he is indeed equal with God. We're going to look at the personal testimony today. Continuing in verses 19 through 30. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, 
those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, there seems to be three primary arguments here, and they're intertwined. So let's separate the threads and examine them one at a time. The first is, I am equal with God because I do the Father's work. You know, every good father wants his son to follow his example. And he therefore strives to set a good example, or he makes excuses and says, do what I say and not what I do. (laughs) Well, in some areas, my dad was not a good example, and he knew it. I heard those words quite often. But still, a good son tries to live up to the example or the exhortations of his father even though both father and son fill their roles imperfectly. But Jesus is the perfect son who follows the example of the perfect father. And as such, he said, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. There's perfect unity between the father and and the son. They work together. What one does, the other does. In fact, to see one is to see the other. Jesus will elaborate on this in his response to Philip's request, Lord, show us the Father. He will simply say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Indeed, to see Jesus is to see the Father. He is the perfect representation of God on earth. In Jesus, God, who is spirit, became God in the flesh. And he did so in order that we can see him with physical eyes or read the eyewitness testimony of those who did. So by seeing Jesus or reading about him, we can actually see God doing his work on earth Through his son, a son who is much loved by the father. The word used here is not agape, it's phileo, brotherly love. It speaks of a naturally close relationship as between brothers or as between father and son. And Jesus said the father loves the son so much that he shows him everything. He holds nothing back. He shares everything with his son. Unlike some earthly fathers, God sees no need to maintain exclusive rights as the father. He has no need to keep the son in his place. His place and the son's place is the same place. So God holds nothing back from his son. He shows him everything he is doing and will show him even greater works to do, works that will cause everyone to marvel, giving evidence to the fact that he is indeed equal with God. Whatever God does, 
Jesus does. As the perfect son, following the example of the perfect father. Jesus does nothing of his own initiative. He's not out to make a name for himself. The son's will is to do nothing but the father's will. So Jesus is equal to God in the work that he does because he does the father's work perfectly. And that work includes being the giver of life. You know, life is a mysterious thing. And that becomes very evident in death. One moment a person or an animal is alive. And the next moment they can be dead. Even though all the physical parts are still there. Now that truth really struck me when my first Harris hawk was electrocuted. One minute she was flying and the next she looked perfect, but she was dead. There was no life in her. Now man may be able to restore life if it's temporarily in suspension, so I did try mouth to beak with my hawk. But man cannot give life to anything. The ability to give life separates man from God, but it doesn't separate the father from the son. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Now he hadn't done so yet, but would soon do so. Jesus was able to raise the physically dead. He would raise the widow of Nain's son, Jairus's daughter, and Lazarus, but wouldn't do so to simply show his power over physical death. It was to demonstrate his power over all forms of death. Now, Jesus didn't do miracles for miracles' sake. He did so to teach spiritual lessons, to demonstrate his power to effect eternal change in the unseen spiritual realm. He raised the dead to make it known that he has the power and authority to give people eternal life. That he could offer eternal life to the spiritually dead. And if the spiritually dead will hear, will listen and believe the voice of the Son of God, they will live eternally. You know, just as Jesus was able to say to the widow's son, young man, I say to you, arise, and to Jairus' daughter, child, arise, and to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, Jesus is able to tell us to rise from spiritual death and come forth into eternal life in his presence. And he doesn't do it simply as a representative of the Father. He does so by his own power and authority. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is the very source of life itself. And he offers it to us freely 
if we'll believe that he has been sent from the Father with the authority to offer life. If we'll accept it, we will pass from death into life and will do so without facing judgment. We can do that because the Son is the eternal judge. You know, we generally picture Jesus as Savior and God as the judge. We envision God on a great white throne and Jesus as the lawyer defending us before him. And that is true in one sense, but it it falls short. The truth of the matter is that all judgment has been given to the Son. God no longer judges anyone. Jesus is now the judge. Now that is indeed a beautiful realization for us. Our Savior is our judge. And as such, Jesus is to receive all honor. Do the judge. And when we honor Jesus, we honor the Father who sent him and gave him authority to execute judgment. And that authority to judge men was given to Jesus because he is not only the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Man. He understands us. He can sympathize with our condition. He will be merciful as well as just. But he is still the one who will one day call forth all who are in the tombs. He is the one who grants eternal life or condemns to eternal judgment. And he does so completely in harmony with the judgment of the Father, because he and the Father are one. They are equal in every respect. They are equal in essence, in works, and in honor. Jesus, our Savior and Lord, is fully equal with God. In fact, he is the only way to God. He is God in the flesh who gives access to God, the eternal spirit. And in surrendering to him and his lordship, we surrender to God Almighty. If you've not surrendered to the Son of God, you've not surrendered to your Creator. You're living in rebellion against the God who created you and will one day judge you. God the Father became God the Son to make it possible for you to avoid judgment. Don't miss the opportunity. You know, one day you will bow the knee to the Son of God. Do it now while He is still Savior. Don't wait 
until he is judge. Now is the time to surrender to the Son of God.